One Hope Church. All right, good morning. Glad you all are here this Labor Day weekend. Um, it's a big travel weekend. Many people traveling not because they wanted to, but because they had to. A few in our own group experienced that, but many people in the path or potentially in the path of a pretty big um, hurricane. We do need to keep all of that um, in prayer um, and pray even that, you know, it's a great opportunity, even though it's, it's going to be bad in many places, but it's a great opportunity for God's people um, to show love and care and to um, talk about what really matters in life and the eternal things and the things that are most precious um, here on earth. Um, we need to remember, you know, stuff is just stuff, but people are people. And um, it can be easy to lose sight of that in day-to-day life. So we're going to continue this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 13. And just to give a little bit um, from um, last week and the week before, this is really a, a sad section of, of Scripture. Um, and we just have to call it what it is. I mean, there's a, a lot of stuff in these p- passages that are terrible. You know, it started um, with David putting himself in a, in a vulnerable position um, and fell into terrible sin and then compounded that sin um, even worse. And then there's consequences for that that we talked about last week, terrible consequences. And really... Um, you know, what, what we're going to see here is that up until that point, you know, God had really protected David from sinful human nature. From those on the outside, from those on, you know, near to him. But now we see that hand of protection being moved, not utterly removed, but being moved. And so now... Um, People who are prone to do evil things are going to be allowed to follow through with their wickedness. God's not going to stop them um, from doing what they naturally desire to do in their sinful flesh. And so this is part of the consequence that David um, continues to endure. Um, And even then, he has responsibility for how he handles it, and we'll see that even that, um, he doesn't handle as well as, as we believe he could have. Um, you know, sin has consequences. We're going to talk about that, you know, some this morning. And my hope this morning, while it's some really terrible stuff happens in this chapter, um, that we take away from it a greater desire to be holy before God. That's the goal um, of it. So we have to, but we have to work through it. And again, you know, when we teach through books, we don't skip the, the terrible things that we would sometimes like to just skim over or skip. We, we tackle it straight on because that's what we have to do. Um, and so let's go to Lord in prayer and then we'll get into 2 Samuel chapter 13. So Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your love. Um, for us. We thank you for your goodness to us. 
We thank you that you are a holy, just, and loving God, that despite how sinful humans have been throughout the centuries, Lord, your love and grace are evident and abundant, most of all in your son Jesus, paying at the cross for our sins, the debt that we deserve to pay, taking our place. And so we thank you, Jesus, that you died for us, And that you save all those who call on your name and you give a new life and a new way to live. And old things are passed away and behold, all things have become new. We thank you for that reality. Help us to remember the full context of the story from Genesis to Revelation as we deal with the difficult passage this morning. And we thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your grace towards us. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So it says in 2 Samuel 13, After this, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar. And Amon, the son of David, loved her. And Amon was so distressed over his sister Tamar that he became sick. She was a virgin. And it was improper for Amon to do anything to her. But Amon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. Now Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, Why are you, the king's son, becoming thinner day after day? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. So that sets a pretty terrible beginning to the story. I mean, you can read those first four four verses and say, This isn't good, right? Um, That's not what we want to read here. Amon, Am, or Amnon, I, should, I think I should pronounce it that way. Amnon wants what he should not want. He, he has a desire that's a sinful desire. But instead of acknowledging that what he wants is wrong, to repent of his sin and to move on, day by day, he continues on those sinful thoughts. He continues to think, think about these things. And it grows from temptation to simple contemplation to repeated contemplation to a simple obsession. And it's affecting him physically. It's obvious to those around him that something's not right. Unfortunately, it's come to attention, the attention of someone who we'll see is a pretty wicked person. And this man, Jonadab, he has access. He's actually you know, a, a cousin, or at least a partial cousin, um, to Amnon. And that's a, you know, he, so he has access. It says here that he's a crafty man. It's letting you know, like giving you a warning about his character. He's crafty. What that doesn't mean like that in a good way. I mean, you know, he's he's deceitful. He has wickedness, wicked desires um, in his heart. We're gonna see that he's he's evil to the core and he entices others to sin. So verse five says, So Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. 
And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Please let my sister Tamar come and give me food and prepare the food in my sight that I may eat, see it and eat it from her hand. So we see his intention here. He gives wicked advice. He basically says, this is your desire. Here, let me, let me show you how you can have that desire. If he was a righteous man, he would have said, Amnon, what you're thinking is foolishness and wickedness and you need to repent and here's what the law of God says and would have confronted him on his sin. But because he's wicked, instead he says, here, let me encourage you. Let me show you how you can accomplish your sinful desire. That's a really terrible thing. Now, I want to say something here, too, because, you know, again, back in Genesis, the original plan, you know, God created Adam and Eve. So for this reason, the man shall, you know, leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In Genesis, it doesn't say the three will become one flesh. It doesn't say the four. It doesn't say the five. The six, the seven, the eight. It doesn't say any of that. The two shall become one. What David has done in taking multiple wives is he does not have one big happy family. He's actually a man with multiple families. You know, that's, that's the issue you know, with, with polygamy. You don't end up with one happy family. There can be an lie and an appearance of that at certain functions, but in reality, there are separate families. There's a man with multiple different families. They may all live under the same roof. They may not. But in this case, it's clear. They are different families. They have the same father. Um, they're half brother, half sister. Um, but because of the polygamy situation, it's not a situation where um, you know someone has has died and then you know the, the spouse remarries. It's not it's not even a divorce and remarry situation. It's worse than all of that because it's it, it creates this competition and chaos and confusion. And so it's a it's a terrible thing. Jonadab is a wicked man. Proverbs 4, verses 14 through 17 say, Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. This is a fitting description of Jonadab, his heart and his mind. He is corrupt, and he corrupts those he is around. The problem for Amnon is it says that he was a friend. It wasn't, you know, a situation where he said, well, that's my cousin, and he's off the rails, and you know he's still family, but I'm not getting too close, and I'm not listening to his advice. No, it's not like that. Amnon has linked himself as a friend to Jonadab, and that friend is wicked. And what do we tell young people all the time? If you're 
closest friends are wicked, you will do evil. If your closest friends are godly, they will keep you from evil. We're all influenced and influencers. We need to be careful who we take on as being our close friends and what sort of advice do they give us when we want to sin. Hopefully not anything as egregious as this, but here we go. Verse 6, Then Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill, and when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let Tamar, my sister, come and make a couple of cakes for me in my sight, that may eat it from her hand. And David sent home to Tamar, saying, Now go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was lying down. Then she took flour and kneaded it, made the cake in his sight, and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and placed them out before him. But he refused to eat. Then Amnon said, Have everyone go out from me. And they all went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes which he had made and brought them to Amnon, her brother, in the bedroom. Now when she had brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. Okay, particularly verse 11, that's just gross and creepy and also against everything that's in the law of Moses that they were both under. Deuteronomy 27:22 said, Cursed is the one who lies with his sister, the daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. So again, there wasn't, oh, you're a half-sister, so it's okay. You know, there wasn't any provision for that in the law. This was, you know, completely out of, out of bounds. Um, so that the law gave no provision for that. It also it gave no provision for mutually agreed upon sexual relations outside of, of being married. You know, that was... You know, what was the problem with David and Bathsheba? Well, they weren't married. In fact, Bathsheba was married to someone else. Okay? But if she had been single, it still would have been wrong because they weren't married. They were not under covenant before God together prior to, therefore, sinful. Now, as I say that, we, I mean, we just have to call what the Bible says. You can say, I don't agree with the Bible. You can say, I don't like what it says. You can say, it's antiquated. You can say, I'm just not going to follow it. You can do all of that. But what you can't do is change what it says. What you can't do is say, what the Bible says is sinful is now no longer sinful. You can't do that. And say, oh, and I believe God, and I believe in this, and I believe in that. That's not compatible. It just doesn't work. You know, we need to have a consistent approach. You need to have context. And, you know, someone say, well, that was under the Old Testament law. So what's, read the New Testament. And the New Covenant, those um, sexual expectations have not changed. They just have not changed. People can want them to have changed. Doesn't mean they've changed. And so we need to be very clear about that because what happens when things are not done God's way is it brings unnecessary pain 
unnecessary problems, unnecessary consequences into people's lives. We need to be humble and to say, even when God's way is something different than what I want, I trust that God knows best for, for us since we are his creation. Now, we don't expect, and we're very clear here, we don't expect the world to agree with us on this. You should not expect people who say, I don't believe in Jesus, I don't believe in what the Bible says, to then be under our moral code. That, that's not logical. But we should expect those of us who say, I believe in Jesus. Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is my King. I have submitted to his authority. Now there is an expectation to do what he says. And according to Jesus, what Amnon had done when he first entertained the temptation, not when he was tempted, but when he first entertained it, and contemplated it and continued on it, that's when he first sinned. That's when he first sinned in a grievous way before God. To God's standards, especially under Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, for us on this area are really, really high. His standards are high. Now, we say a couple things with that. His standards are high, and that's what we need to strive for. At the same time, we also acknowledge there's grace. I don't know of any follower of Jesus who has been 100% pure, holy before God on that subject. If you find one for me, you'll have found the first one that I've met in 44 years. Okay, so there's grace there. There's always grace but the scripture gives us very clear instruction not to take grace for granted and not to abuse grace. And it's really, really wrong to intentionally abuse grace. So we have to acknowledge that. Verse 12 of 2 Samuel 13, verse 12 says, But she answered him, No, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. And I, where could I take my shame? And as for you, you would be like one of the fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. Okay, let's break that down. So Tamar makes it very clear that she doesn't want what her brother wants. She makes her case. First case is, no such thing should be done in Israel. Now, why does she say that? She's saying, we are not like these other nations around us, where that sort of thing is common. We're not like that. We are under, she's basically making an appeal that they are under the law of Moses, that they are under a standard, and we just read the law of Moses. So that shouldn't be done in Israel. She's made an appeal to the law. She's made an appeal to their identity as Israelites. This shouldn't be done. And then she says, so that's the guilt part of it. You're going to be guilty. But then there's this, and where would I take my shame? So you have to remember the culture 
in that part of the world in that time, and it's still true today, that there's a great emphasis on shame and honor. There is guilt and innocence in the Old Testament. There's no doubt there's guilt and innocence. There's also shame and honor. And, you know, you could put on the scales and try to weigh out which was more important, guilt or innocence or shame and honor. It probably tilt toward the weight being on shame and, and honor, as is still the case today in, in most of the Middle East. And on, for us, we have shame and honor. We get that. We also have guilt and innocence, and we probably put more weight on guilt and innocence than we do shame and honor. Okay, but for them, shame and honor are really, really crucial. Really crucial. So she appeals to her honor. She asks her brother not to make her ashamed, not to put shame onto her. And then she says this, and then you would be like one of the fools. So she appeals to his position as one of the king's sons. You know, that's an appeal like, you're supposed to be like a prince. You're supposed to be one of the king's sons. You're supposed to conduct yourself in a certain way, not like a fool. And then in her final plea, Tamar urges him to talk to their father about it. I think at this point, she's just trying to get herself out of the situation. I think she knows her brother, Absalom's not going to let that happen, that her father would not allow that to happen because he still has respect you know, for the law that they are under. In verse 14, terrible verse, terribly sad verse. However, he would not heed her voice, and being stronger than she, he forced her and lay with her. And now notice this in verse 15. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Arise and be gone. It's such a terrible thing. We learn a couple of things from this. One, that description of love is not meant the word love there I don't think is meant to be taken in the sense that we would talk about a godly love or, or even a, a, a friendly love or a, a, the proper love between humans, but it's a description of lust. He lusted after her, you know, ultimately is the situation. And then when he had taken what he had wanted and it did not satisfy it turned to hate. Sin, the, the big lesson to learn from this is that th- sin does not and cannot satisfy. Sin does not and cannot satisfy. He took what he wanted because he, he was sure that fulfilling that sinful desire would satisfy him. But it did not. It left him with bitterness and hatred. Now, we don't have to talk about nearly as grievous a sin in order to get the point 
and to apply that point into other areas of life. We just need to remember, sin does not satisfy. There is no point that where sin is like, you know what, that's enough. That's enough. The, the, the enemy's goal when it comes to sin is to tempt to, to gain a little bit of participation in that sin and then for that to grow over time to the point of, of addiction. And that doesn't have to be alcohol or drugs or, or something like that. It doesn't even have to be a sexual sin or, or anything like that. It could be gossip. To get somebody addicted to gossip. It could be lying. Get someone addicted to lying. It doesn't satisfy. The person who has gossiped, the person who is engulfed in gossip never, never says, you know what? If I just heard one more juicy thing today, I wouldn't need to hear another juicy thing the rest of my life. I wouldn't need it. That would satisfy me. I just have one more. You all know that's a lie. We all know that's a lie. And it doesn't matter what the sin is. When it's there, you know, no, no person who's addicted to wealth says, you know what? That's the last, the, the dollar I earned today, that's the last one I needed. You could have a billion of them in the bank, but that person doesn't think, that's the last one I need. Not when there's addiction. Not when there's greed. So this gives us an encouragement to flee from temptation so we don't get caught in a snare. But if we are caught to plead and go to the throne of God and ask for help, understanding that God is merciful and he gives help in time of need, but we have to be honest about what our, what our issues are. Amnon has committed the sin he wanted to commit and has left him with nothing but bitterness and hatred in his heart. He's in such a far worse place and now he has such a terrible guilt on his head. Verse 16, when she, after he had said to her to be gone... Now, she says in verse 16, So she said to him, No, indeed, this evil of sending me away is worse than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. Now, this seems really odd to us, that she would not just immediately be trying to get out of there herself, but would say, Well, what you're about to do now and sending me away is worse than what you just did to me. But again, that's a cultural perspective. The Bible isn't telling us that she should have that perspective. It's just telling us the perspective that she had. And that's largely influenced by her culture, and not all of her culture is godly or, or biblical. But when you have that honor and shame culture, it causes people to do things that are not, or, and to desire things that are not necessarily logical or good or healthy. Okay? Okay. So verse 17 then he called his servant who attended him and said, Here, put this woman out away from me and bolt the door behind her. Now she had on a robe of many colors, 
for the king's virgin daughters wore such apparel, and his servant put her out and bolted the door behind her. Then Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her robe of many colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went away crying bitterly. And Absalom, her brother, said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? But now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this thing to heart. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. So here, what do we see? Um, We see her in a desperate situation. She... um, has been through something very terrible. Very terrible. And Absalom sees that and he immediately knows what the issue is because you can imagine that he had been suspicious of his brother. He probably also feels guilty. He has not been able to protect his sister. Um... He takes her in, into his house so that she can stay there. Now, there, there's something there, because it says, so she remained desolate in her brother's house. And this is something that we need, again, to understand culturally why that was her perspective and why she didn't just, you know, why she did not, it, we don't see and we're not told the whole story, so I don't want to jump too far to conclusions, but we don't see her. We're not told that she comes out of this in a positive way. She's going to, unfortunately, allow this terrible thing to define her. And there's a lesson there for us as well, especially because of Jesus, and especially because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. We do not have to allow what has happened to us in our past to, to utterly determine our future. We have decisions to make about what we will do, about what help we will seek, about how we will approach the rest of life. Verse 21, But when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. And Absalom spoke to his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. Now at this point, it seems to us that King David should have punished Amnon for what he had done to Tamar. And there's two, I think there's two reasons why we don't see him do that. One is that Amnon is his firstborn son his first child and it seems like there's some some favoritism some um, lack of discipline that has been there in his life that things even get to this point the second is that though David had the positional authority to bring judgment, he no longer has moral authority because of his past failures. It's hard to wield a strong sword with a weak arm. 
because of his own past moral failures, it's hard for him to look Amnon in the eye and say, and now I'm going to judge you. And the law says, you should die. He's lost his moral authority from which to do that. There's a lesson there, folks. You see, with our kids, it can be small things. See, with our kids, if they're, you know, yelling at each other, if the kids are yelling at each other, it's hard for parents who yell at at each other to tell their kids, you shouldn't do that. Because then they're saying, don't do as dad and mom do, do as we say. There's a lacking of moral authority. Because what is, what is preached or what should be preached is not practiced. So for us who are, are parents or will be parents in the future, there is a tremendous responsibility and burden to make sure that we live as pure as we can before the Lord. Like, like how does a, uh, you know, if you're a father, I'm a father, you have to have conversations with the son in his teenage years about lust and purity and those sorts of things difficult to do if one's own life is full of lust and impurity. You see, we have to have more, you know, we, we need to, to be right before the Lord so that we can speak from, from a position of experience. And some of our experience is failure. And we have to acknowledge that and have to be honest. But we have an opportunity, particularly in Christ, to live in a way that honors God and in a way that's an example, a good example for others, including our own children. So we need to be careful that we do not lose our basis for moral authority. And I'm afraid that even the true church of God has lost a lot of its ability to speak on these things. You know, if, if, if the church's house is not clean, how can it speak to the world truth about these things? Verse 23, And it came to pass after full, two full years that Absalom had sheep shearers in Baal Hazar, which is near Ephraim. So Absalom invited all the king's sons. Then Absalom came to the king and said, Kindly note your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go on now, lest we burn. We are burned to you. Then he urged him, but he would not go, and he blessed him. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him, so he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Now Amnon, Absalom had, had commanded the servant, saying, Watch now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then kill him. 
Do not be afraid. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. So Absalom has a plot. He knows he's going to ask his father for something that his father is going to say, thank you, but no thank you. And he's going to be able to use that as an opportunity to take away security from Amnon. He's going to put him in a place where he will be able to take his revenge. Now, I'm going to say a couple things, and you may not agree with me, and that's okay. Um, And just note that I'm not saying that this is, you know, absolute truth, but this is, you know, my perspective on the situation. My perspective on the situation is that Amnon did deserve to die for his sin. He deserved to die. But it's also difficult to call Absalom's actions as courageous or valiant or his men's actions. In fact, he brings others into his hatred for Amnon. He asks them to sin at his command. I think we would all respect it more if he had challenged Amnon to a duel over the honor of his sister and said, today we're going to fight. Or if he had presented his case in front of his his other brothers and they all agreed he is guilty and he must die and they struck him down. Either of those would be more palatable and would also have less consequence for everyone involved. But Absalom's hatred for Amnon has clouded his vision and he is not seeing clearly what justice is. To him, the only justice is that Amnon dies. How he dies has become irrelevant. But there's something about justice, that there's the act of justice, but there's also how justice is accomplished and whether that is just or not, whether that is honorable or not. And so in this case, we have to say that what Absalom did was not honorable was not, he did not take a just approach to seeking justice. Verse 29, So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each one got on his mule and fled. And it came to pass that while they were on the way, that news came to David, saying, Absalom has killed all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. So the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the ground, and all his servants stood by with their clothes torn. Then Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, answered and said, Let not my lord suppose they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for only Amnon is dead. For by the command of Absalom this has been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. Now therefore, let not my king, lord the king take this thing to heart to think that all the king's sons are dead, for only Amnon is dead. Hmm. That's interesting, isn't it? Isn't it interesting that Jonadab would know that information? Would know that all the other king's sons were actually safe? When he hasn't witnessed that with his own eyes yet, 
he knows what Absalom has plotted. Because when he, at minimum, at minimum, when he saw what Absalom had done in terms of, of getting all the king's sons away from Jerusalem, he knew what the plot was. How? Because scripture says he's a crafty man. He thinks that way. He thinks like a criminal. He thinks like a plotter, a deceiver. We could suppose, I mean, it's, and it's even possible that this was his plan all along. One is left to wonder if he had hoped that David's sons would destroy themselves. He's, the he's a cousin. If they're all dead, maybe eventually he has more power. The more of them that go away, the more power he has. What are his true motivations? What was his motivation in the first place in going to Amnon? I don't think it's a far stretch to say that he had reason to encourage Amnon's desire for sin. Now, Amnon's still, again, 100% responsible for his own sin. Jonadab, 100% responsible for his own sin. Absalom, 100% responsible for his own sin. Absalom's men, 100% responsible for their own sin. None of those can look and go, because you did this, I had to do this. We can say it's natural to do that. It's still sinful. And we need to remember that. Just little things in life. You're driving down the road, somebody cuts you off intentionally. That's their sin. You respond in rage well, that's your sin. So we're each responsible for our own sin. And when the truth, and we're, when we're forced to tell the truth, we're, we're not able to say, Lord, it was somebody else's fault. And we live in a blame everybody else culture. And certainly people have sinned against us, every last one of us. And some have received, been on the wrong end of that a lot more than others have. But at the end of the day, we're all still responsible for our own sin. Absalom flees. Verse 34, Absalom fled, and the young man who was keeping watch lifted his eyes and looked, and there many people were coming from the road on the hillside behind him. And Jonadab said to the king, Look, the king's sons are coming, and your servant, as your servant said, so it is. So it was as soon as he had finished speaking, that the son, king's sons indeed came, and they lifted up their voice and wept. And the king and all his servants wept very bitterly. It's interesting, I think, there, they lifted up their voice and wept. See, we're individuals, but sometimes we have a communal experience. Sometimes bad ones... 
sometimes good ones. You know, as a church, we have opportunity when we come together to worship the Lord to do so in one voice, as one, united as the body of Christ. And that's a privilege that we have. Um, And we have a privilege. The scripture tells us to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. We have that privilege. Sometimes we have to do that all the same day. But here, with one voice, they lifted up their voice and wept. Verse 37, But Absalom fled and went to Tamiah, the son of Amminadad, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And King David longed to go to Absalom, for he had been comforted concerning Amnon, because he was dead. Now, isn't that an interesting in verses? Because when you first read, David mourned for his son every day. Oh, he mourned for Amnon? No. He was mourning for Absalom. I'm sure he mourned some for Amnon as well, but his real sense of loss is because he knew Amnon got what he deserved. But he was saddened at the cost that that would come to his other son. That Absalom has now taken refuge in another place. Now, it seems to us that David, King David could have gone to him or could have sent for him. Again, I think you know, he's making decisions out of you know, repercussions for what he has, his own sin, his lack of moral authority to handle the situation, his own shortcomings. And you know, perhaps at this point, he, f- he feels a bit um, paralyzed. Um, He's not, I think we, what we can safely say is that his ability to make the right and courageous decisions that he made before his fall has been compromised. And there are repercussions for that. So we've gone through one of the saddest chapters in the scripture. but it has some lessons for us. The first is do not listen to the advice of the wicked. If someone wants to encourage you to sin or validates your sinful desire, you've got to get away from that person. See, when you think about when you have a problem and who you go to for counsel, who you go to advice, does that person just try to make you feel better? Or do they open up the scripture and say, here's what God says about it. And you might not like it, but here's what God says about it. And I love you enough to tell you that you're thinking about this the wrong way. And you're going to hurt yourself. And you're going to hurt others. And I love you enough to tell you the truth. This is what the Bible says. That's a true friend. The friend that doesn't open up the scripture, that doesn't quote the scripture, that doesn't reference the scripture, but just says, Oh, I'm so sorry, friend. What can we do to make this better for you? That's a false friend. That's not a true friend. 
That's a friend that will lead you to destruction. Don't have those people as close friends. They can be acquaintances. They can be people you try to reach for the gospel, but they cannot be in that inner circle because they will lead you to destruction. The second thing is that sin not repented from will grow and will continue to grow until one of the two things happens. It's either repented of or it brings forth death. Third thing is that sin does not satisfy. The fourth is that revenge has bitter consequences. And the fifth is that the believer in Jesus is to cast away all these sinful things. There's a few verses from Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3. Ephesians 4, 17 through 23. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. That is a description. This is how the scripture defines the world apart from Christ. Listen to that description. Futility. Their understanding darkened. Separated from the life of God. Full of ignorance. But it's a willful ignorance. It's the ignorance of the blindness of the heart. It says their past feeling. They've just given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Now that's not a popular message. Go put that as a Facebook post and watch what happens. But that is our world. We have to recognize this. But listen to this, verse 20. But you have not so learned Christ If indeed you have heard of him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old person, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. When a person comes to Jesus... It's expected that there's going to be a change. Not everything may change overnight. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. But there's going to be a change. The main change is a change of desire. A desire to live according to the world was the old man. A desire to live according to God is a new man. And now there sometimes has to be instruction. Hey, the scripture says this is wrong. Oh, I hadn't learned that yet. But now I know, I've got to change that. But the new man will be willing and will desire to be different, to change. But it has to be according to the work of God and the power of God. We're not, we can make some 
outward appearances of things to be different. And we can, you know, sometimes get rid of a bad habit or whatever, apart from the power of God. I mean, other than the fact that God gave you breath and a will and a mind and all the things actually that you need in order to do it to begin with. But without an express asking God's help. But to truly change the heart, we need the Lord. We need his power at work in us. But we have a responsibility to seek it and to desire it. Colossians 3, 5 through 10, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth. Doesn't say put you, no, be real clear. It's not telling you to put yourself, like your physical body, to death. But it is saying this, these things about you, fornication, sexual sin, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Like those things, you, the, the illustration is you got some filthy cockroaches running around the floor. You're not like, hey guys, you know, come hang out in my house. No, you, go, you crush them. That's what we're supposed to do with these sorts of sins. Give no place to them in our lives or to crush them, to send them away in the power of God. Treat your sin like a dirty, filthy roach. Like that's what we're supposed to do. No mercy towards it. We don't give place for it. It says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. See, this is where we have a lot of hope. Because people can be doing a lot of terrible things, but we don't give up on them because, hey, what does the scripture say? Most of us were doing terrible things before we came to know Christ. We came to know Christ and we stopped doing those terrible things. There's an expectation of change. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. You yourselves are to put off all these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. See, we were made in the image of God. That image was marred through the sin of our first parents. And it's renewed in Christ. And we should look more and more like Jesus. That's the goal. And that has to be our explicit goal. If we, if we say, Jesus is my Savior and King, like, I'm following Him. I'm not, I don't want to go the way of this world. I want to be with Jesus. I want to follow Him. Then we need to have this vision, and that vision needs to be, we want to be more like Jesus, and we need to pursue that vision. And we need to be willing to cast away the things that don't, help accomplish that vision the sins that hinder that vision the distractions that hinder that vision need to be removed so that we can grow to be more like Jesus that's the goal
And I believe that the scripture is going to be pretty clear. It's pretty clear that when when we are more like Jesus, there's a response from the world. Those who are in the process of coming to Christ notice and go, that, that there's something there. There's something there that I don't have, and I'm, I'm getting kind of curious about what that is. And there's others who are going to see that Jesus, and just like, I mean, what did Jesus say? Say, you know, they, they, if they're going to crucify him, I mean, imagine that. The one who came in all truth, the one who, you know, fed the multitudes, who, who made the, the lame walk and the, and the blind see and the deaf hear and the mute speak, if they're going to crucify him, are they going to treat you any better than that? We see, we want to get all offended and all surprised when some people in this world hate us when we're actually doing what's right. We shouldn't be surprised. They hated Jesus. Shouldn't be surprised. So some are going to be attracted and say, I want more of that. And others are going to be repulsed and say, I hate that. And we have to be okay with that. Because our role is just to be more like Jesus. We can't be all tied up all the time about the outcome. Because all that we can, we can't control how other people respond to us. We, we have control over whether we're becoming more like Jesus or not. That's our job. And so take some of the pressure off yourself in terms of how other people react. And say, I just need to make sure I'm I'm loving and then I'm telling the truth in love and then I'm becoming more like Jesus. And then let everything else play out. Be okay with that. But we all get, I mean, if you're like me, somebody gets their feathers ruffled and you feel like you've done the right thing, but they're angry, upset, and then you, you know, man, let it go. Let it go. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and pray that This week, we have opportunities, and we take those opportunities to share the love of Jesus. But first, you know, let's check in our own hearts before the Lord, right? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. We thank you for your love and your goodness to us. Pray that you would help us to learn lessons from every chapter of Scripture, even the ones that are have really terrible things in them that give the history of the wickedness that is in a human heart and the potential wickedness, God, is just astounding. But Lord, we know that your son Jesus died on the cross for our sins to free us from the penalty of our sin but not only that but to free us from the power of sin and that in the future we'll be saved from the presence of sin and so you've come to save us fully and we thank you Jesus 
As we take the bread and the cup this morning, we remember that our salvation came at a great cost to you. And we are thankful. And Lord, please heal our wounds. Help us to recover and to move forward from the sins that have been committed against us. In the power of your spirit, give us freedom from those things that we might enjoy your presence, your goodness, and the days that we have left on this earth. That we would not be bound by the past, but that we would be freed today for the future. Lord, we thank you for your love and your grace that is more powerful than our sin. We thank you, Jesus. In your precious name, amen.